So, I have no idea what happened, but apparently sea shanties are popular all of a sudden. So, if you've heard this one, great! Like, it's a slice of history. Um, this is the old song Sea Shanty, or the old Sea Shanty Spanish Ladies, um, which I'm especially fond of, to be perfectly honest. This isn't the greatest recording, this is actually the one from Assassin's Creed Black Flag. I'm a giant nerd, sorry, but there we are. Um, and it's a little bit doctored up, a little less of the, you know, rowdy sailors singing for the sake of singing. Um, but I think it's especially apt to our reading today. Um, on the one hand, because we're talking about Spain and the fascination that British sailors have with Spanish ladies especially, and the sort of cultural assumption that they are somehow more sexually promiscuous or exciting than, you know, those old, withered British ladies. Um, but also just the sort of assumption that, like, foreign women are somehow more interesting and exciting across the board. Um, as Byron's Don Juan very much becomes rooted in, in Orientalism and sort of the fascination with other cultures that is very much a part of Western European culture during Romanticism. Um, frequently the Romantics are looking at these other cultures and seeing them as more free, more in tune with themselves than the stuck-up, morally bound, like, Christianized Western Europe. Um, and this song expresses that to some degree, the idea that, yes, we're leaving you Spanish ladies, we're going back to Old England, which is, you know, fine, it's nice, I guess. Um, but this was an escape. This was something exciting that we were doing in the meantime. Um, so this, too, is a huge part of the cultural consciousness. Like, I know we've been dealing a lot with classical music lately. I'm trying to sort of balance that out as much as I can, show that there are obviously multiple sides to the whole business of culture in general. And the Romantics, of course, would be the ones to emphasize folk music, um, emphasize you know, the, the music and culture created by the poor as much as, or more, than the culture enjoyed by the rich at this point. Alright, time to close out our discussion of Romanticism with, of course, Lord Byron's version of Don Juan. I said we'd get to it, and indeed we finally have. Um, I realize we've disproportionately spent a lot of time in Romanticism, but we do have to read Gerda's Faust, and given a couple of other varieties of what Romanticism is doing, like Devil and Tom Walker and Byron's Don Juan, seemed equally important. It's a major, major groundbreaking artistic movement, so all the more reason to, to dwell on it a little bit. Um, but I want to stress how very different um, Byron's version of Don Juan is from the Don Juans we've seen before. Um, Byron's writing in the early 19th century, like not terribly long after um, Mozart's version of Don Giovanni, which is at this point probably the dominant version in Europe. Um, the first canto of Don Juan was especially early. It was uh, written in 1819, I believe. Um, and then, as promised in the actual text of Don Juan itself, he gradually released more and more cantos. The story goes that he originally did, like, try it as a lark and wasn't expecting a whole lot of reception, was expecting a lot of pushback, but people loved it, so he wrote more. Um, and it turned out to be huge. Like, I know that he says towards the end that he's planning 12 cantos. Um, I believe 15 
even 16 were published before his death um and he was he did not like actually conclude the story it just you know that was as far as he got um so it would have probably gone on forever and ever and ever and took some very weird turns along the way uh, but the key thing to keep in mind as we are reading byron's version of don juan as opposed to the don juans before is that byron totally reverses the fundamental relationship that don juan has to his conquests in both moliere and in don giovanni we see don juan seducing women the conquest is what he strives for here it's the other way around don juan is almost always seduced um, we see it here with Donna Julia, and it happens over and over and over again in the other cantos. This is the first major change. The other major change is the focus. Um, we saw with Moliere that he was doing a lot of social satire in his take on Don Juan. You know, you get Skinnerell's conversation about the snuff, and you get the, the whole Skinnerell dressing up as a doctor and, and holding court on his patients just as authoritatively as any other doctor would. We get Don Juan himself, you know, teasing or sort of like avoiding having to pay his debts by, you know, smooth talking his creditors we get him claiming to be pious with his father in order to get out of his obligations as son byron goes into it on an even deeper level um but part of what enables byron to do this is his format um you know all of the don juan versions we've seen so far have been plays this is the first like epic poem take on don juan and like many other epic poems throughout the 18th and 19th century it is meant to be more than a little satirical like it's taking the form and sort of misusing it deliberately um by rendering it epic he actually makes it more comic like don juan isn't nearly as exciting to warrant these long you know quasi-heroic passages describing his accomplishments um really this has nothing in common with like the homeric poems even though that's where our narrator starts out but the fact of the matter is the narrator is one of the main characters of this poem um he is not meant to be trustworthy um this is one of the characteristics that we're going to see grow more and more important in the 19th and 20th century these unreliable narrators these sort of satires of the poetic form itself um byron is not writing an epic poem he is following them in the tradition of um other british literature like tom jones that we talked about um that sort of abuse the form to achieve a comic result it is sort of over exaggeration throughout the poem of both don juan's deeds and the events going on to achieve a sort of comic effect and most importantly to sort of shine a spotlight on the hypocrisies and the silliness and just the ridiculousness of the society that he's sort of talking about and while ostensibly that is don juan's own like 16th and 17th century spanish society it is very obviously written with a more modern audience in mind it is that society that byron is definitely pointing at and laughing at and encouraging us to do the same um, all of the hyper academic language here all of the you know long diatribes in terms of phrase all the pseudo intellectualism that's a lot of what byron is trying to make fun of here um, just as goethe 
was drawing this very clear distinction between enlightenment scholarship and romantic passion, Byron does the same, but without the seriousness that Goethe has. By contrast, Byron is emphasizing how absurd enlightenment values are. He is defending romantic passion as a negative thing, um, as opposed to this absurdity. Like, given that all of enlightenment values, all of classical education, all of this supposed emphasis on scholarship is ultimately worthless, is serving just mar or like cover up all of our normal natural behaviors all of our desires our adulterousness our gossip all of the you know the bad behavior we pretend is good by dressing it up in this flowery language if we should all just like be honest with ourselves take it away and you know be who we actually are rather than claiming to be something better now we can see the first sort of hints of this even from the very first stanzas of the canto. Like they're not as rich as many of the others we've looked at, but notice what Byron does emphasize here. Our narrator tells us, I want a hero, an uncommon want, when every year and month sends forth a new one, till after cloying the gazettes with Kant, the age discovers he is not the true one. Of such as these I should not care to vaunt, I'll therefore take our ancient friend Don Juan. We all have seen him in the pantomime, sent to the devil, somewhat ere his time. Vernon, the butcher Cumberland, Wolf, Hawk, Prince Ferdinand, Granby, Burgoyne, Keppel, Howe, Evil and Good have had their tithe of talk, and filled their signposts like than like Wellesley now, each in their turn like Banquo's monarch stock, followers of fame, nine pharaoh of that sow. France too had Bonaparte and Dumouriez recorded in the Monitor and Courier. And he goes on, he lists even more of them, like he's got four or five whole stanzas devoted to enumerating all of these heroes of British and French culture. Notice too that he emphasizes that it is strange in this first canto that he wants a hero. There seem to be so many of them. Why does he need a hero? But he also is emphasizing that this is absurd. There can't be this many heroes. We keep emphasizing all these heroes, and half these names you probably don't even recognize a little bit. Clearly they weren't all that heroic, or we would remember who they were. At the very least, you might pick up on Bonaparte. That's Napoleon, by the way. He's kind of a big deal. But most of these others, not so much. Their significance has definitely degenerated. And he's pointing that out now. The papers are quick to call these people heroes. Are they really heroic, though? His suggestion is not. Don Juan, he instead chooses as his hero, which is itself kind of strange, because Don Juan is hardly heroic in most of the stories that we've told. But notice that Byron doesn't really commit to his heroism, or anti-heroism for that matter. Um, he is not really interested in talking about the morality of the situation. He is the hero for his swashbuckling adventures, of which there will be many by the end of the multiple cantos he writes. Um, but also, he's sort of on par with all these worthless heroes that the papers keep talking about. Why bother is kind of what the, the narrator is suggesting here, and Byron by extension. What makes these people so heroic? Couldn't we just as easily say that Don Juan is a hero? That he is every bit as admirable? 
this sort of absurdity, this sort of lampooning of these important characters is something that he's going to do fairly consistently through this text. He, Byron is very interested in bringing these self-proclaimed heroes down a peg, especially by sort of uncovering and po pointing at their hypocrisy, much as we have seen before. Um, now, the other thing that you'll notice is that he is deliberately undermining the epic poem, most epic poem, poets plunge in medius res. Horace makes this the heroic turnpike road. And then your hero tells, whenever you please, what went before by way of episode, while seated at, after dinner at his ease, beside his mistress in some soft abode, palace or garden, paradise or cavern, which serves the happy couple for a tavern. Now, in... The great Greek tradition, starting probably all the way back to Homer, like he points out Horus and is, you know, that's apt, but Homer is definitely is famous for starting in Medias Res. The Iliad doesn't start at the beginning of the Trojan War, but already nine, ten years into it, um, it just covers one tiny sliver of the conflict, um, specifically the, the vengeance of Achilles for the death of Patroclus and ultimately killing Hector. Likewise, the Odyssey does not detail the entire story of Odysseus's journey home from the Trojan War, but starts with Odysseus like nine years into the journey stranded on Calypso's island. Um, as Byron says here, you start in the middle of the story and then you have your hero narrate whatever happened before at their leisure. Um, but, he says, that is the usual method, but not mine. My way is to begin with the beginning. The regularity of my design forbids all wandering as the worst of sinning, and therefore I shall open with a line, although it cost me half an hour in spinning, narrating somewhat of Don Juan's father, and also of his mother, if you'd rather. Now, part of the reason why he chooses to get rid of the Inmedius Res is, we see, because of the regularity of his design. Again, this had... This positively reeks of enlightenment value, where everything has to be rationally organized, everything in its place. You know, you have to tell the entire story, start to finish. You have to begin with first print philosophical principles. None of this immediate rest nonsense will do. Um, so, in this case, we're starting even before Don Juan is born. We're starting with verses detailing the lives of Don Jose, Don Juan's father, and Dona Inez, Don Juan's mother. Especially Dona Inez, because she will feature rather prominently in Don Juan's character, since Don uh, Jose kind of dies fairly early. Um, but notice, again, it's this overly pedantic quality about the narrator. Um, Byron is pointing fun at all of these people who insist on doing things in just such a way, even when, you know, the heroic epic tradition teaches us otherwise. Um, so here we have our, our depiction of Don Jose and Dona Inez. His father's name was Jose, Don, of course, a true Hidalgo, free from every stain of Moor or Hebrew blood. He traced his source through the most gothic gentleman of Spain, a better cavalier ne'er mounted horse, or being mounted, ere got down again, than Jose, who begot our hero, who begot, but that's to come. Well, to renew, his mother was a learned lady, famed for every branch of every science known, in every Christian language ever named, with virtue equaled by her wit alone. She made the cleverest people quite ashamed, and even the good with inward envy grown, finding themselves so very much exceeded in their own way by all the things that she did. Now, the characters that we're devising here are very much 
mismatched. That's what our narrator, what Byron is very much emphasizing. On the one hand, we have Don Jose, who is noble all the way down. He comes from a long, long line of noble Spanish gentlemen. But, as we will discover, he is absolutely a womanizer. Um, he spends a lot of time sleeping with other women. Um, and as he, we find in stanza 19 around line 150, he was a mortal of the careless kind with no great love for learning or the learned who chose to go wherever he had a mind and never dreamed his lady was concerned. The world, as usual, wickedly inclined to see a kingdom or a house overturned, whispered he had a mistress, some said two, but for domestic quarrels, one will do. Don Jose can't keep his, you know, hands off other women, and that leads to, obviously, problems between him and Dona Inez, especially because the world knows about it. Like, it is indiscreet, and people catch on, and the rumor mill goes a-grinding as a consequence, um, which Dona Inez will actually use. Byron is actually really critical of the rumor mill here. He will refer to it often, and speak often, of how society responds to these sort of domestic problems, how people are eager to talk about this stuff. But Dona Inez, Dona Inez is as straight as an arrow. She absolutely does not cheat on, on Don Jose, at least not at this point. Later, she'll have her relationship with Don Alfonso, but that's a long time coming, and Don Jose will be long dead at that point. What's worse, Dona Inez is absolutely the spitting image of Enlightenment philosophy and science. Um, as we find in stanza 12, her favorite science was the mathematical. Her noblest virtue was her magnanimity. Her wit, she sometimes tried, tried at wit, was attic all. Her serious sayings darkened to sublimity. In full, short, in all things she was fairly what I call a prodigy. Her morning dress was dimity, her evening silk or in the summer muslin, and other stuffs with which I won't stay puzzling. She knew the Latin, that is, the Lord's Prayer, and Greek, the alphabet, I'm nearly sure. She read some French romances here and there, although her mode of speaking was not pure. For native Spanish, she had no great care, at least her conversation was obscure. Her thoughts were theorems, her words a problem, as if she deemed that mystery would ennoble them. Notice the way that her scholarship is being presented here. Dona Inez carries herself as though she is very learned, very intelligent, very smart. She knows about math. She knows about all of these sciences. And yet, when it comes right down to it, the narr narrator has trouble putting his finger on what exactly she actually knows, how, what she actually is smart about. It says that she knew the Latin, but just the Lord's Prayer. She knew the Greek alphabet, I think. She read a few French romances, but those are hardly admirable. It's not like philosophy or scholarship. And in, her, in Spanish, she can't even speak without all of her phrases becoming riddles. Um, notice that he repeats this point. In stanza 12, he says, her serious sayings darkened to sublimity. Like, she's saying these things that are so mysterious, people think that they're wise or intelligent. Um, in stanza 13, he repeats, at least her conversation was obscure, her thoughts theorems, her words a problem, as if she deemed that mystery would ennoble them. See, that's Dona Inez's trick. That is her move. If she seems to be mysterious, if all of the things that she says don't make sense, people will think she's smart, even though she isn't actually smart. 
that's the way that Enlightenment science is being presented here. It's a whole bunch of fancy, mysterious talk that actually doesn't come to anything. It's all puzzle, no solution. But this interest in scholarship is something that Inez is absolutely insistent upon. She is trying to come off as smart, as learned, as educated. And because Don Jose has no interest in being educated, this just serves to become even more of a problem. So later we find that they are absolutely coming into trouble as a consequence. Uh, in stanza 26 and 27, we hear Don Jose and the Dona Inez led for some time an unhappy sort of life, wishing each other not divorced, but dead. They lived respectably as man and wife, their conduct was exceedingly well-bred, and gave no outward signs of inward strife, until at length the smothered fire broke out and put the business past all kind of doubt. Notice the emphasis here, that they not just... They don't just want each other divorced, but dead. They hate each other that much. But also that they are bound by their marriage. They can't be dishonorable. That would be inappropriate. That would expose them to the, to the criticism of society. So as a consequence, they want each other dead. Notice that Byron is specifically pointing at the institution of marriage here and how counterproductive it is. How this social construct actually turns out to produce a worse problem than the benefit it proposed to conduct. Here is marriage, it binds people together supposedly to make them happy and, you know, to bring them closer together in God's eyes, and yet now both of these people want each other dead because they're stuck in this relationship that they hate and they want to get out of. Now, this is where they start trying to destroy one another. For Inez called some druggists and physicians and tried to prove her loving lord was mad. In short, she's trying to argue her way out of the marriage, saying that her husband is incompetent. If he is insane, then she is under no obligation to stay married to her. But as he had some lucid intermissions, she next decided he was only bad. Notice that she's trying to present herself in a sympathetic light here. She is appealing to the court of popular opinion. My husband is insane, she says, but since he is occasionally lucid, she goes on to say, nope, he's just terrible. Yet when they'd ask her for her depositions, no sort of explanation could be had, save that her duty both to man and God required this conduct, which seemed very odd. She doesn't have any proof. We know that Don, that Don Jose has been sleeping on, around on her, but she can't prove it. And as a consequence, even though everybody knows that this is the case, she can't bring it to court, and thus they are still stuck together. So she ramps up her efforts. She kept a journal where his faults were noted and opened certain trunks of books and letters, all which might, if occasion served, be quoted. And then she had all Seville for a betters, besides her good old grandmother, who doted. The hearers of her case became repeaters, then advocates, inquisitors, and judges, some for amusement, some for others for old grudges. So she starts noting every bad thing that he does to her. This is her evidence she's trying to gather it all together and she starts repeating it she is talking to everyone in seville about how badly she is being treated by john jose and they spread it around more the rumor mill starts grinding and notice the reasoning here some for amusement some because they just like spreading rumors but also for old grudges some people are repeating these stories to get back at don 
Jose and Dona Inez. But, unfortunately, in the middle of all of this rumor-mongering and these efforts by Dona Inez to get out of her awful situation, Don Jose dies. And, and that quite inconveniently. Um, their friends had tried at reconciliation, we read in stanza 32, then their relations who made matters worse. T'were hard to say upon a like occasion to whom it may be best to have recourse. I can't say much for friend or yet relation. The lawyers did their utmost for divorce, but scarce a fee was paid on either side before, unluckily, Don Jose died. So they're starting to get the lawyers in for another round, hoping to get divorced. Dona Inez is getting all of her paperwork together to prove that Don Jose is a bad husband. And Don Jose dies. He died, and most unluckily because, according to all hints I could collect from counsel learned in those kinds of laws, although their talks obscure and circumspect, his death contrived to spoil a charming cause, a thousand pities also with respect to public feeling, which on this occasion was manifested in a great sensation. He dies and everybody's upset because they were looking forward to the giant fiasco that this whole divorce proceeding was going to be. But what's worse, but ah, he died and buried with him lay the public feeling and the lawyer's fees. His house was sold, his servants sent away, a Jew took one of his two mistresses, a priest the other, at least so they say. I asked the doctors after his disease, he died of the slow fever called the Tertian and left his widow to her own aversion. The Tertian PS is one of the sexually transmitted diseases, or at least a name for it in this particular uh, poem, so we know exactly what he's been up to. But what's worse, all of the lawyers are screwed out of their fees. They were all planning to get a big impressive payday, and now they've been stalled because he's dead and now there won't be a divorce. There's no need for it. Um, the public is also stalled. It's very disappointing. We were really hoping that everyone was going to get all worked up and there'd be a fiasco and a scandal and stuff in the papers, but nope, never got that far. Alas, I guess we'll have to find something else to entertain us. Now, Don Juan's education is the next major subject that we end up devoted to here. Dona Inez, now that Don Jose is very dead... And he is the sole heir, so all is, so all now relies on him. Um, but you'll notice that Dona Inez, being the extremely educated, extremely fastidious, and extremely moral woman that she is, has a rather strange approach towards this education. And Byron is very quick to point this out. Um, so. We see in stanza 37, dying intestate, Juan was sole heir to a chancery suit and messages and lands, which with a mi long minority and care promised to turn out well in proper hands. Inez became sole guardian, which was fair, and answered but to nature's just demands. An only son left with an only mother is brought up much more wisely than another. Sagest of women, even of widows, she resolved that Juan should be quite a paragon and worthy of the noblest pedigree. His sire was of Castile, his dam from Aragon. Then, for accomplishments of chivalry, in case our lord the king should go to war again, he learned the arts of riding, fencing, gunnery, and how to scale a fortress, or a nunnery. Notice that Byron is stressing that the skills that Don 
that Don Juan is learning are themselves, you know, potentially problematic in their own right. He can learn to scale a fortress, but also a nunnery. The same skill set serves for both. But that which Dona Inez most desired and saw into herself each day before all, the learned tutors whom from him she hired, was that his breeding should be strictly moral. Much into all his studies she inquired, and so they were submitted first to her all, Arts and sciences, no branch was made a mystery to Juan's eyes, excepting natural history. Meaning, she's willing to teach him all of these fancy subjects of scholarship, all of those important educational subjects, but not biology, because she doesn't want him sleeping with, you know, women. So we continue, the languages, especially the dead, the sciences, and most of all the abstruse, the arts, at least all such as could be said to be the most remote from common use, and all these he was much and deeply read, but not a page of anything that's loose or hints continuation of the species was ever suffered lest he should grow vicious. His classic studies made a little puzzle because of filthy loves of gods and goddesses who in the earlier ages made a bustle, but never put on pantaloons or bodices. His reverend tutors had at times a tussle, and for their Aeneids, Iliads, and Odysseys were forced to make an odd sort of apology, for Dona Inez dreaded the mythology. See, the trick here is, as is common in, in uh, British culture at this time, the classical education is the most prioritized mode of educating young men, and... It's full of sex. Like, if you have read any of the old Greek myths, the Iliad, the Odyssey, any of the great Greek writers, you will find that they are just full to bursting with, you know, Zeus sleeping with random mortal women or adulterous relationships between gods and men or whatever. It's all over the place. So here we have this strange conflict of these very Puritan values with this very British desire for education. And this conflict Byron dwells on, showing the hypocrisy here, that at the same time as Dona Inez insists that Don Juan get the best of education, she refuses to let any reference of sex or sexuality slip into the curriculum. And so all of these scholars are tearing their hair out trying to figure out how you're supposed to tell the story of the Iliad without sex, how you're supposed to tell the story of the Odyssey without sex, how are you supposed to teach Don Juan the Greek myths without referring to any of the sex of any of the characters. But they find the book, and this is the perhaps best, most exemplary uh, image that Byron can prepare of exactly how hypocritical this whole business is. In stanza 44, it says, one was taught from out the best edition, expurgated by learned men who place judiciously from out the schoolboy's vision the grosser parts, but fearful to deface too much their modest bard by this omission and pitying sore his mutilated case. They only add them all in an appendix, which saves, in fact, the trouble of an index. So they find this edition, like, with this mentality in mind, we've got to preserve the, you know the integrity of all of these classic works of literature, but also we cannot let these young men see these, like, penurious and potentially problematic images of sex and people having sex and stuff. So we have a volume that cuts the difference. All of the, like, racy bits from all of the myths and all of the classic texts have been removed 
but because they don't feel comfortable damaging these texts in this way, they end up putting them in the back of the book altogether as an appendix. But as Byron points out, it just saves the trouble of an index. For there we have them all at one fell swoop. Instead of being scattered through the pages, they stand forth marshaled in a handsome troop to meet the ingenuous youth of future ages, till some less rigid editor shall stoop to call them back into their separate cages instead of standing staring together like garden gods and not so decent either. If you put all of the sexy bits in the same place, guess where Watt is going to spend all of his time? Like, any time that you do this. Like, can you imagine, I remember when I was a kid, we would go to the dictionary and look up all the swear words. And when we discovered that the swear words were not actually in the dictionary, but kept in an index at the back, it was just that much easier. There they all were. You could see every swear word in order. It was a, saved us the trouble of having to look for each one individually. That's what Juan is dealing with here. All of the sexy bits, all of the good parts of the myths have all been taken out and removed to one place in the back. And as a result, you can bet he's going to be thumbing over those pages over and over and over again. In the interest of preserving morality, all of these scholars are just making it that much easier to be immoral. This social structure, this social conviction that, you know, we can't expose our young men to sexuality ultimately is self-defeating. That's what Byron is stressing here. That's the absurdity that Byron is highlighting, that he is pointing out, that he is insisting upon. Here is a society so divided against itself, so ridiculously hypocritical about its values and its morality, that it ends up absolutely contradicting its own values, completely obliterating its, you know, the, the effects with the good intentions that it has. Inez wants to protect Don Juan from all this racy business and yet makes it all that much easier for him to access. That said, it seems that it doesn't work all that well. When Don Juan is in fact exposed to like sex in the wild, he is wildly unprepared for it. And of course, by this I mean Donna Julia. Um, so, Donna Julia gets her own fairly long description and her own sort of relationship to Juan is involved and, and talked about at some length. And I want to look at that as well because Donna Julia's sort of situation is particularly emblematic. Um, she is very much the moral center of this piece in Byron's opinion. She is the one who will deliver our moral. She is the one who, you know, moves the action along. Um, again, because Don Juan has no idea what's going on. Like, Don Juan, because of his studies having made him so oblivious to what's going on with sexuality, makes him just that much more vulnerable when Donna Julia starts to make advances on him. Um, so at this point, like... Byron jumps forward a little bit. We go from Don, Don Juan at 6 to Don Juan at 16. Um, and at this point, we introduce Donna Julia in stanza 55. Amongst her numerous acquaintance, meaning Inez, all selected for discretion and devotion, there was the Donna Julia, whom to call pretty were but to give a feeble notion of many charms in her as natural as sweetness to the flower or salt to ocean, her zone to Venus or her bow to Cupid, but this last simile is trite and stupid. The darkness of her oriental eye accorded with her Moorish origin. Her blood was not all Spanish, by the by. In Spain, you know, this is a sort of sin. When proud Granada fell and forced to fly, but... Boabdil wept of Donna Julia's kin. Some went to Africa, some stayed in Spain. Her great-great-grandmama chose to remain. 
Now notice where Don Juan is like absolutely perfect pedigree. Like he has, you know, just de generation upon generation leading back only through like the most noble um, Dons of Spain. Donna Julia, Byron emphasizes, has mixed blood. Unless you think we're going to go on yet another awkward racist tirade like I did last time, don't worry, this is going to be a completely different approach to it. Um, she's married, Byron says, I forget the pedigree, with an Hidalgo who transmitted down his blood less noble than such blood should be. At such alliances his sires would frown in that point, so precise in each degree that they bred in and in as might be shown, marrying their cousins, nay, their aunts and nieces, which always spoils the breed if it increases. Notice this idea that you have to stay within the bloodline is exactly what Byron is critiquing here. He is insisting that it is exactly this sort of royal inbreeding, this royal marrying other royals um, that is causing the breed, the stock of their blood to become weak. As much as it is emphasized that they must remain pure, that purity is essentially destroying them. And this is starting to become a really big problem in 19th century England. At this point, virtually all the royals in Europe have been intermarrying, like it's all Habsburgs, it's all, you know, Tudors and, you know, various British royals. At this point, everybody has been sleeping with each other for so long and all of the children are related to one another in order to make strategic political alliances that there are some major actual biological problems that are creeping up. Um, the Romanovs are famously plagued with hemophilia, which will cause a problem in the 20th century, as we will talk about. Um, there are all sorts of genetic deformities and these problems with the various nobles that are creeping in, and Byron observes this. Again, we have a social convention that is now self-defeating. This idea that the blood needs to, be, to remain pure is actually destroying itself. And so he says, this heathenish cross, this cross between the, the sort of questionable Hidalgo and Julia's grandmama, restored the breed again, ruined its blood, but much improved its flesh. For from a root the ugliest in old Spain sprung up a branch as beautiful as fresh. The sons no more were short, the daughters plain, but there's a rumor which I fain would hush that tis said that Dona Julia's grandmama produced her don more heirs at love than law. In short, not only is Donna Julia's grandmama producing, you know, heirs of this tainted blood, which actually makes them much stronger and much more beautiful and much better across the board, but in addition, she's sleeping around and producing a lot of heirs that aren't technically his blood at all. Byron is poking fun at the entire institution of royal inheritance in this sense. You know, the heirs might not be his own, and really, is there a problem with that? Like, what is the point of all this blood in the first place? Why do we insist upon lineage so strongly when, it, when taken to its absurd extreme, it's just producing all of these blighted nobles who are weak and pathetic and sickly and rotten, in short? Donna Julia is the product of ignoring those social conventions, of turning one's back and embracing the practicality of the situation. And that's why she is beautiful and upstanding and has all of these great virtues. Um, as he says, it ruined its blood, but much improved the flesh. Um, she profits from her grandmother's infidelity. And in fact, it turns out to be for the best. Um, now, 
Julia is a bit of a complex character here. We find her and she's already married. So on stanza 62, we hear, wedded she was some years into a man of 50 and such husbands are in plenty. And yet I think instead of such a one, twere better to have two of five and 20. Byron is in this case, poking fun at the institution of marriage as it is frequently expressed through this habit of marrying older men to younger women. And again, because of economic reasons, especially in the 19th century, it had kind of reached this boiling point, so to speak. Um, it was pretty habitual that a man having achieved, you know, all of his economic stability in life, having, you know, built his empire, sought his fortune, made his money, would look for a woman that is much, much younger than him in order to marry. Oftentimes because he had a wife and she had died in childbirth or any number of things had happened, or just because it took that long for him to reach economic stability in the first place. But obviously no young girl of 16 wants to marry a 50 year old um and the difference in age here is dramatic um donna julia becomes married at the age of 20 to this 50 year old dude she's 23 at the time that don juan is 16 as we'll describe this is a problem and byron even jokes about it he says i think it would be better if she married two people of 25 instead of one person of 50 as though the years are somehow the metric that's being solved here um as he says ladies even of the most uneasy virtue prefer a spouse whose age is short of 30. obviously she's not attracted to him and that's a problem Again, here we have this restriction, this marital tradition that is in fact getting in its own way. Here we have marriage to an older man for economic reasons, ending up with unhappy marriages because the woman doesn't want any part of this and for good reason. Um, what's more, she's very much thinking about kid out in a little while. Byron goes on in, in stanza 69 to emphasize that the two were very much growing up together. And at first, this doesn't seem to be a problem. Like when Dona Julia is 20 and, and, John is, and Don Juan is 13, it's not a big deal. As he writes, um, when Juan she saw and as a pretty child caressed him often, such a thing might be quite innocently done and harmless styled. When she had 20 years and 13, he, but I'm not so sure I would have smiled when he was 16, Julia 23. These few short years make wondrous alterations, particularly amongst sunburned nations. Um, you'll notice that there have been a couple times that Byron has referred to Spanish as like a particularly sunny place and that sort of conducing to greater sexuality um, like three or four times in the last several stanzas as I've read them he's sort of made reference to this stuff um, he'll remark on this even at even greater length in a little while when he has like his whole description of how you know up in the cold north yes it makes perfect sense to marry everybody off for economic reasons but where you know the blood is lively and people actually do you know want to have sex it doesn't work so well um spain is considerably farther south than england and it was frequently assumed in europe that the spanish were especially lively um and excitable as a consequence the italians too fall into this category um this is obviously a gross stereotype in its own right, but like it was widely assumed amongst Byron and his contemporaries. Byron himself, one of the things that the Romantics sort of often indulged in, often participated in, was this sort of uh, romanticization of other cultures. 
Um, Byron will spend a lot of time in the the poem Don Juan talking about Don Juan's adventuring in you know Turkey and Arabia and all sorts of you know distant foreign lands. There was a sort of obsession at this moment with the with foreign lands, especially like the sunburnt lands, as Don, as Byron puts it here, um, and Orientalism, this sort of fascination with you know the Turks and, and the sultans and the, their harems was running rampant across Europe. And this brought about a lot of problematic stereotypes. Like Don Juan here refers at least once to a sultan with his harem and how he would much prefer to be that kind of hermit than, you know, the kind that's just sitting at home alone all the time. Um, likewise, in many other works of the period, like I'm working my way through... Uh, Alexandre Dumas, the, the Count of Monte Cristo for like the umpteenth time now, he too, like, he draws a lot from the Arabian Nights and um, the Arabian culture and Oriental culture in general. Um, and this is something that is exciting and new and, and enticing and lots of people are like asking questions about it because it's so interesting to them. Europe was very fascinated with these cultures largely because they did kind of fit their romantic ideal, at least in their own minds. They saw these people as being more liberated, more freed to pursue their passions, less restricted by these cultural conventions, which is not actually the case. Like they had their own problems and it was bullshit for all of these writers to think that they could somehow, you know, like mischaracterize them in this way, especially when so few of them actually understood what was going on in those cultures. Um, and what's more, this has led to a lot of problematic stereotypes in our own right. Like there's so many sort of, you know, exotic Arabian sort of stereotypes that you associate. Um, like just go watch the 90s Disney movie Aladdin and you'll find a whole bunch of them, although they're not as bad as you will find in a lot of these 19th century works. Um, that was an obsession of the romantics that has sort of carried on because so many of these works have become famous, have, become, have stayed popular. Um, and went on to inform generations of people equally obsessed with this sort of fantastic and absurd and not an unreal um, notion of what like the Middle East and that and Asia Minor actually do and what they look like. Um, but let's not focus too much more on that. Notice. Notice that for all of that, the emphasis here is on Donna Julia and her dissatisfaction with her husband. You know, Spain or not, sunny or not, at the end of the day, 25-year-old girls should not be married to 50-year-old men if, like, fidelity is supposed to be a huge priority here. Obviously, Dona Julia does not love Don Alfonso. That is abundantly clear. Um, it was purely an economic match, probably made without her permission in this particular case, or at least without much say on her part. Um, and as a consequence, Dona Julia is attracted to Don Juan. Like, again, it's one thing when she's 20 and he's 13. It's another thing entirely when she's 23 and he's 16, as Byron points out. He's coming into the full flower of manhood. She is very much in the full flower of womanhood. She is married in a match that she does not want any part of. Naturally, she's going to look around. But what's more, like, that's kind of the way it's supposed to work. Now, 
If we skip ahead a little bit to stanza 74, this is where Donna Julia starts to really feel her passion. And importantly, Byron is dramatizing the sort of mental process by which she's justifying this to herself. So she's growing more and more attracted to him. The danger is coming upon them. And we have, and then there were sighs, the deeper for suppression, and stolen glances, sweeter for the theft, and burning blushes, though for no transgression, tremblings when met, and restlessness when left. All these are little preludes to possession of which young passion cannot be bereft, and merely tend to show how greatly love is embarrassed at first starting with a novice. Poor Julia's heart was in an awkward state. She felt it going and resolved to make the noblest efforts for herself and mate. For honors, prides, religions, virtues' sake, her resolutions were most truly great and almost might have made a Tarquin quake. She prayed the Virgin Mary for her grace as being the best judge of a lady's case. So she... Julia feels herself being tempted. She realizes she's falling in love with Don Juan and she kinda take steps to prevent it. But notice that those steps are half-hearted at best. So she resolves to make the noblest efforts for herself and mate. She prays to the Virgin Mary for grace, like protect me, Mother Mary, from my temptation, protect me from, from this potential sexual sin. And yet, in stanza 76, Byron tells us she vowed she never would see one more and next day paid a visit to his mother and looked extremely at the opening door, which by the Virgin's grace, let in another. Grateful she was, and yet a little sore. Again it opens, it can be no other, to surely one now? No. I'm afraid that night the Virgin was no further prayed. So, notice, she prays to the Virgin Mary, protect me from temptation, like, keep sin away from me, and yet she goes to Juan's house the very next day to sit with Dona Inez, and she sits there watching the door as person after person comes in, and while on the one hand she's grateful, yes, it's never Juan who comes in, she's putting herself in this position to be tempted. Like, it's only half-hearted. For all her protests, for all of her, you know, praying in order to be protected from her sin, Donna Julia wants to sin. Like, she wants to sin badly. This is not even, you know, equivocal. To the point that, as a result of one not coming in to tempt her, she stops praying to the Virgin Mary because she thinks that she's screwed it up. Like, she wants to be tempted. The prayer was only half-hearted. She's lying to herself, is what it comes down to. She now determined that a virtuous woman should rather face and overcome temptation. That flight was base and dastardly, and no man should ever give her heart the least sensation. That is to say, a thought by, beyond the common preference that we must feel upon occasion for people who are pleasanter than others, but then they only seem so many brothers. So now she changes her mind. Okay, well, I prayed to the Virgin Mary, and, you know, then I was totally protected from temptation, but really... I need to be strong. I need to overcome temptation. I need to face what I'm tempted by, and I need to beat it, and flying away from it, and running away, that's, that's cowardly. She's making these weak justifications to herself. Why is it okay for her to go on seeing Juan, go on exposing herself to this temptation? And she comes up with more. And even if by chance, and who can tell, the devil's so very sly, she should discover that all within was not so very well. And if still free, that such an, or such a lover might please, perhaps, a virtuous wife can quell such thoughts and be the better when they're over. And if the man should ask, tis but denial. I recommend young ladies to make trial. 
She says to herself, okay, well, maybe I am being tempted. Maybe I am weak. It doesn't matter. I should be stronger. This is an opportunity to make myself stronger. I shouldn't fly away. I shouldn't be cowardly. I should overcome temptation. And even if it, I turn out to be tempted, well, I can steal myself and be an even better wife as a consequence. She's making these flimsy justifications to herself. And then she keeps going. And then there are such things as love divine, bright and immaculate, unmixed and pure, such as the angels think so very fine, and matrons who would be no less secure, platonic, perfect, just such love as mine, thus Julia said, and thought so, to be sure. And so I'd have her think, were I the man on whom her reverie's celestial ran. The last thing that she comes up with, which is the one that we'll explore even greater, um, in Byron's text, is that her love is platonic, it is divine, it is pure and perfect. Her love is sacred, it is different from base, egotistical lust. This is true, profound, godly love. It transcends sexuality. She doesn't love Don Juan because she's attracted to him sexually. She loves Don Juan because their souls are entwined. Their love is platonic, it is idealized, it is philosophical, it is not fleshly. And Byron emphasizes that this is the most bullshit excuse of all. So I'd have her think, were I the man on whom her reverie celestial ran? Yeah, if she's, you know, she's in love with Don Juan because of stars and perfection and philosophy, well, yeah, it's just going to open her up all the more to actual sexual temptation. That's the emphasis here. All those big highfalutin words, just like all those big highfalutin enlightenment values, are just covering up the fact that she wants to fuck Juan. That's all it is. And Byron doesn't have any sort of... Byron emphasizes that it is bullshit for her to keep insisting that there is something greater, something bigger, something more profound than this. She's horny. Admit it. Good grief. So she in, so we go on and she starts coming up with even more like crazy justifications for herself. So here in stanza 84, and if in the meantime her husband died, but heaven forbid that such a thought should cross her brain, though in a dream, and then she sighed, never could she survive that common loss, but just suppose that moment should be tied. I only say suppose it, intronos. This should be intronu for Julia thought in French, but then the rhyme would go for naught. I only say suppose this supposition. Like, notice all of the caveats that the narrator places here. If in the meantime her husband died, like she's entertaining even the most vague way, maybe what if, just what if, like bear with me, not that she's wishing it, not that she wants it to happen, but just what if her old 50-year-old husband died? Like, just not that she wants it. No, she, she's a good wife. Absolutely. Again, she's lying to herself about this. She wouldn't, she wouldn't be just so beside herself if, in fact, he died. But just, just in case he actually died, Julia being then grown up to man's estate would fully suit a widow of contrition. Even seven years hence, it would not be too late. And in the interim, to pursue this vision, the mischief, after all, could not be great, for he would learn the rudiments of love, I mean the seraph way, of, of those above. So she's sitting there thinking to herself, well, if my husband were to die, and you know, he might, he's old, not that she wants it, not that she, she's expecting it, not that she's going to, like, make it happen, nothing like that. 
but just, you know, if he was going to die, maybe it would be in the best interests of hers to, to, you know, talk to Juan about this. Maybe, you know, raise the topic of love and maybe even teach him a little bit about how love is supposed to work. Maybe, maybe then, you know, even if it's like seven years from now, he'll be ready and she can just marry him and they'll already have done all the groundwork and it'll be so nice and so easy. She's making all of these excuses to herself, making all of these explanations to herself because she's not willing to admit that she's horny, that she wants a piece of John. Like, that's just people. And Byron is just laughing at how absurd these contortions are, how overly academic this whole thing becomes, how she, you know, covers up her own lust with all these highfalutin notions of purity and some divine love and overcoming temptation for the sake of her own personal strength. And, you know, she's investing in the future just in case her husband dies. Not that he would in fact die, but like, all of this is written with this tongue-in-cheek, like, backsliding kind of way, sort of depicting temptation as it is happening. How she's refusing to admit her own viciousness to herself. Which is not to say that she is all that vicious. Like, she's trying to be good, she just isn't. And that's okay, as far as Byron is concerned. He's not condemning Julia for this. This is natural, he insists. And remember, the romantics are all about that naturality. Time to quit putting on all these pretensions of holiness or goodness or rightness or justice or intelligence or whatever. Those pretensions are what Byron is skewering throughout this text again and again and again. Um, and finally, this is concluded. Like, this whole seduction scene. They meet and they hold hands and gives a platonic squeeze. But it's just a, a platonic squeeze. Why would you interpret that as sexuality? But Juan doesn't understand, so he just kisses her. And now they're off to the races. Oh, Plato, Byron writes in stanza 116. Oh, Plato, Plato, you have paved the way with your confounded fantasies to more immortal, immoral conduct by the fancied sway your system feigns over the, over the controlless core of human hearts than all the long array of poets and romancers. You're a bore, a charlatan, a coxcomb, and have been, at best, no better than a go-between. He accuses Plato of being the primary cause here. All these notions of platonic love, this high ideal non-sexual love, has always just been an excuse. Plato is as much a matchmaker as any one of these horny teenagers. That's what Byron is out to say. We have been using Plato's name as though it is somehow better to have sex under platonic love when actually it's always just sex. It's never been anything more impressive or holy or important or profound or whatever. It's just an excuse to make ourselves feel better about the fact that we're running like deer in a ditch. Like, that's all it comes down to. Um, now, again, we skip forward on this one. We go from June to November in a single bound. But in the process, our narrator gets a little caught up on talking about science. And I want to sort of look at that for a moment because again this is kind of exactly what byron wants to talk about here um all of our supposed accomplishments and our refinement in basically just finding new ways of characterizing our basest instincts 
So in stanza 128, we get this rather strange description of scientific achievement in the 19th century. Man's a strange animal, he says, and makes strange use of his own nature and the various arts, and likes particularly to produce some new experiment to show his parts. This is the age of oddities let loose, where different talents find their different marts. You'd best begin with truth, and when you've lost your labor, there's a sure market for imposture. Again, science is great. We all are very interested in novelty, but it means that as many charlatans and, you know, blustering idiots can succeed as true scientists. What opposite discoveries we have seen, Byron emphasizes. Signs of true genius and of empty pockets. One makes new noses, one a guillotine. One breaks your bones, one sets them in their sockets. But vaccination certainly has been a kind antithesis to Congreve's rockets, with which the doctor paid off an old pox by borrowing a new one from an ox. In short, Byron is laughing at a lot of the art uh, scientific accomplishments of the 18th and early 19th century. Here he lists, you know, we have the, 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 you know, new prosthetic nose, but we also have the guillotine, the most destructive, you know, technology of the, of the French Revolution that was this fancy new way of conducting executions. We have doctors who break bones and doctors who put them back in their sockets. We have vaccination, which is basically just infecting you with a disease so you won't get a different disease. Um, bread has been made indifferent from potatoes and galvanism has set some corpses grinning, but has not answered like the apparatus of the humane society's beginning by which men are unsuffocated gratis. What wondrous new machines have late been spinning? In short, he's saying there's all sorts of fancy technology. We can make bread out of potatoes. We can, you know, electrify corpses and make them grin, but has not answered like the apparatus of the humane society's beginning by which men are unsuffocated gratis. We haven't fixed the fact that people, you know, breathe. We haven't done anything about that. We are still living life, in short. How much accomplishment have we in fact done? What have we in fact changed about the human condition? I said the smallpox has gone out of late. Perhaps it may be followed by the great. Notice this one's a bit of a throwaway, but it's particularly Byronic. Smallpox has been cured or is in the process of being cured. This is in the process of being eradicated and vaccinated. Um, more people are now being protected from the smallpox, but the great pox actually refers to syphilis. The pox that is, again, transmitted sexually. To set the great pox came from America. Perhaps it may set out on its return. The population there so spreads, they say, tis grown high time to thin it in its turn, with war or plague or famine anyway, so that civilization they may learn, and which in ravage the more loathsome evil is, their real lose or our pseudo-syphilis. This is the patent age of new inventions, he says, for killing bodies and for saving souls, all propagated with the best intentions. Sir Humphrey Davy's lantern, by which coals are safely mined for in the mode he mentions, Timbuktu travels, voyages to the poles are ways to benefit mankind, as true, perhaps, as shooting them at Waterloo. What he's emphasizing here is that all of these scientific accomplishments aren't actually advancing human beings. We have discovered how to infect people with diseases to prevent them from being infected with other diseases. We have, dis we have eradicated smallpox and introduced syphilis. Um, 
all of this civilization is in fact doing as much damage as good. Um, he stresses, you know, we can travel now across the globe. We can go to Timbuktu, we can go to America. And yet it is as beneficial as shooting people at Waterloo as the technology of, of fancy firearms, of new military tactics. He is saying that there is no science that is benefiting mankind any more than it is actually destroying us. That, you know, we create these fancy new ships and we drown in greater numbers. Um, we create these new technologies to prevent disease and we introduce new diseases. Man's a phenomenon. One knows not what, and wonderful beyond all wondrous measure. Tis pity, though, in this sublime world, that pleasure's a sin, and sometimes sin's a pleasure. Few mortals know what end they would be at, but whether glory, power, or love, or treasure, the path is through perplexing ways, and when the goal is gained, we die, you know. And then, what then? I do not know, no more do you, and so good night. At the end of the day, Byron says, okay, so we advanced human beings in all these different ways. We are still all seeking pleasure. We are still trying to get the same glory, power, love, treasure as always we have. And we still die. And we still have no idea what happens after we die. Thanks, science. Thanks for nothing. Byron very much emphasizes that all of these so-called accomplishments, all of these inventions, all of this fancy new intellectualism, at the end of the day, we still all die, we still have no idea where we go, and that's the end of it. Let's talk about Donna Julia. Now, what transpires is this fairly long scene, sort of like the centerpiece of the work, where Donna Julia is discovered by Alfonso. Um, she has been sleeping with Don Juan, and now she is suddenly caught. Um, so here we have it, stanza 136. "'Twas midnight, Donna Julia was in bed, sleeping most probably, when at her door arose a clatter might awake the dead, if they had never been woke, awoke before, and that they have been so all, we all have read, and are to be so at the least once more. Again, our narrator gets distracted. Here we were talking about the action, and now we're talking about, you know, theology, because... You cannot go like three stanzas in this text without the narrator getting distracted by some highfalutin academic subject. The door was fastened, but with voice and fist, first knocks were heard, then, Madam, Madam, hist! For God's sake, Madam, Madam, here's my master with more than half the city at his back. Was ever heard of such a cursed disaster? Tis not my fault, I kept good watch. Alack! Do, pray undo the bolt a little faster. They're on the stair just now, and in a crack we'll all be here. Perhaps he yet may fly. Surely the window's not so very high. So, Dona Julia is enjoying her time with Don Juan. Her maid comes to the door and says, Don Alfonso is coming with all of these other people get Don Juan to safety. Like, the window's not so high, he can still jump out of it and run, right? But by this time, Don Alfonso was arrived with torches, friends, and servants in great number. The major part of them had long been wived, and therefore paused not to disturb the slumber of any wicked woman who contrived by stealth her husband's temples to encumber. Examples of this kind are so contagious, were one not punished, all would be outrageous. Notice what Byron emphasizes here. Here are all of these men accompanying Don Alfonso, all of whom are also married. They also are terrified of being cuckolded, of, you know, being cheated on. Notice that examples of this kind are so contagious. Were one not punished, all would be outrageous. 
somehow their argument is that we have to absolutely like destroy and reject this one case of adultery lest all adulteries be somehow outrageous they are proving to themselves that they are good that they are seeking out and destroying these evil people with their evil habits because that proves that they are good that they are holy just as we saw with Tom Walker in the last passage, his hypocrisy where, you know, by accusing people of one crime, he is sort of blotting out his own, that he makes himself holier by, by stressing the, the faults of others. We see the same thing here. They're proving they are holy by insisting on punishing those who commit these adulteries, even if they are doing them themselves at other times. I can't tell how, or why, or what suspicion could enter into Don Alfonso's head, but for a cavalier of his condition it surely was exceedingly ill-bred, without a word of previous admonition, to hold a levy round his lady's bed, and summon lackeys armed with fire and sword, to prove himself the thing he most abhorred. Once again Don Juan points out, or rather Byron points out, the self-defeatingness of what Alfonso is doing here. Here Alfonso has gotten word, oh no, Donna Julia is sleeping with another man, she's sleeping with Don Juan, and he immediately brings together as many people as he can get to charge into her bedroom and reveal this thing that he is most disgusted by. Like, to preserve his honor, Don Alfonso is destroying his honor. That's what Byron is stressing. Why would you do this? Why would you, you know... Let this be the way that you uncover this deed. Why wouldn't you talk to her quietly or have a private conversation about it? Now, as it happens, Donna Julia immediately jumps from sleep and there's this long conversation between the two of them. They search the entire room, but not in the bed where Don, Don Juan is hiding, like pressed up against Donna Julia's legs, as we are fairly evocatively informed. Um, they search the entire place and then find nothing and notice again the hypocrisy here donna julia to cover her own indiscretion immediately lays into don alfonso so in stanza 145 we see during this inquisition julia's tongue was not asleep yes search and search she cried insult on insult heap and wrong on wrong it was for this that i became a bride for this in silence i have suffered long a husband like alfonso at my side but now i'll bear no more nor here remain if there be law or lawyers in all spain she threatens to sue him for this defamation of her character, that he has brought all of these men into her bedroom, accused her of this crime that she hasn't committed, although she has committed it, and then proceeds to insist upon her, in, her innocence by accusing Don Alfonso of this crime. Yes, Don Alfonso, husband now no more, if ever you indeed deserve the name. Is it worthy of your years? You have three score, fifty or sixty, it is all the same. Is it wise or fitting causeless to explore for facts against a virtuous woman's fame? Ungrateful, perjured, barbarous Don Alfonso, how dare you think your lady would go on so? Notice too that there's a secondary motive here that's just sort of insist 
like implied here. If Dona Julia is this offended by Don Alfonso, she has grounds for divorce, in which case she can totally get together with Don Juan. So once again, we have a social structure that is self-defeating, that is used to hypocritical ends. Dona Julia convincing everyone around her, shouting at the top of her lungs, look at this, look at this way that my husband treats me. Can you believe that he accuses me of sleeping with this other man while Don Juan is in her bed? Can you believe that he would accuse me of this without any cause whatsoever? I can't believe this. I cannot be this man's wife anymore. It is enough that I have been dealing with this 60-year-old ancient geriatric jerk for so long. I am going to definitely accuse him of being unfaithful or being a terrible husband, get my divorce, and, you know, marry Don Juan. Here is my out, Donna Julia figures, and starts just laying into him. She's got, like, Ten stanzas of accusations, ten stanzas of shouting hypocritically at her husband, accusing him of this, you know, paranoia, when in fact this paranoia is justified. Eventually, Don Alfonso and company leave very dejected, and they get Don Juan out of the bed and hide him in the closet, just in time for Don Alfonso to come back, trip over Don Juan's shoes, and immediately everything, all hell breaks loose. Don Juan goes running out. He crashes into Don Alfonso. He, like, punches him in the face, knocks him to the ground, and keeps running away. Everything falls apart. He, Don Alfonso gets a divorce with Donna Julia. She ends up in a nunnery. Like, all of this, just all of this chaos, all of this tragedy brought about. And Don Juan is forced to flee for his life because Don Alfonso is looking for him now. And Donna Inez is scandalized by her son's behavior. But notice... Don Juan is innocent here. Like, if anything, it's his innocence that is the problem. Back when we were talking about Donna Julia, Don Juan also got his little description of exactly, you know, how, like, where he's at as far as the seduction is concerned. He is also oblivious. Back in stanza 92, like, while Juan is sort of, you know, wandering around and Julia is falling in love with him, in stanza 92, it says, He thought about himself and the whole earth, of man the wonderful and of the stars, and how the deuce they ever could have birth. And then he thought of earthquakes and of wars, how many miles the moon might have in girth, of air balloons and of the many bars to perfect knowledge of the boundless skies. And then he thought of Donna Julia's eyes. In thoughts like these, true wisdom may discern longings sublime and aspirations high, which some are born with, but the most part learn to plague themselves with all, they know not why. T'was strange that one so young should thus concern his brain about the action of the sky. If you think t'was philosophy that this did, I can't help think thinking puberty assisted. He poured upon the leaves and on the flowers and heard a voice in all the winds, and then he thought of wood nymphs and immortal bowers and how the goddesses came down to men. He missed the pathway, he forgot the hours, and when he looked upon his watch again, he found how much old time had been a winner. He also found that he had lost his dinner. See, Don Juan has been instructed only in these highfalutin abstract principles. Only in science of the sky and of, you know, earthquakes and all this, you know, stuff about nature, and yet he doesn't know anything about sex. Remember, all of that had been removed from his books. He has been protected from it all his life. So when Donna Julia makes an advance, he has no protection for it. He just falls right into her lap, quite literally in this case. Um, all of this leaves him more vulnerable, not less. 
again, society just makes him all the more innocent, all the more vulnerable, all the more likely to be taken advantage of, and all the more likely to fall into an indiscretion like this. Dona Inez is mortified that Don Juan has slept with Dona Julia, and yet she has been preparing him for this because she hasn't been protecting him from it. She's thrown him into this situation, a young man with a young woman, and she is oblivious. At the time, she even denies that it's happening. She's too busy paying attention to Don Alfonso herself because she has a, she's planning to seduce him. Like, Dona Julia is justified in her, you know, adulterous behavior because Don Alfonso is doing the same thing to her. Now, all of this suggests that Don Juan is a victim. That as much as like Don Juan in all the stories we've encountered so far is, you know, this duplicitous, manipulative person who just tricks women into sleeping with him, now Don Juan is so innocent that all of these women are taking advantage of him. This is the society that is built here. And Byron even has some insight as far as why is that is the case. Julia in the nunnery writes Juan a letter... And in 194, she stresses probably the closest thing we're going to get to a moral in this text, despite all of Byron's insistence that there is no moral and that that's a problem in its own right. She writes, Man's love is of his, thing, uh, is of his life a thing apart. I.e., men love as just one thing, just a separate thing from all the things that they do. Like, they fall in love, they have their family, they have their wife, that's all one tiny corner of their life. But tis women's whole existence. Man may range the court, camp, church, the vessel, and the mart, sword, gown, gain, glory, offer up in exchange, pride, fam, fame, ambition, to fill up his heart, and few there are whom these cannot estrange. Man has all these resources. We but one to love again and be again undone. Byron is pointing out that men have all this stuff at their disposal. They can do anything. They can make money, they can go to war, they can fight with each other, they can, you know, build a house or, you know, have property, they can go to church, they can, you know, do participate in court, they can do all of these different things. And love is just one of the many things. It's just one bit. But for women, it's all they have. They are barred from all of those other experiences. They are forced to stay at home. What else are they gonna do but have liaison? What else is there to do? They would sleep with other men out of sheer boredom if they had nothing else to do. Byron is insisting that this is wrong. And this is weirdly feminist in its way. Like as much as it's, this is not really a feminist text by any extent of the imagination, like Donna Julia and Donna Inez and none of the women are really portrayed in any positive light at all. Um, They're all at, you know, manipulative and sort of dumb in their own way, everybody is manipulative and dumb in their own way in Byron's text. And at the very least, what he has to say is, why are we keeping women from this stuff? You know, they had no choice, in a sense. Just as Don Juan is an innocent, he is, you know, completely unprepared for Don Dona Julia seducing him, Donna Julia is also, what, you know, what else is she supposed to do? She's in a horrible marriage with a man who is cheating on her and who is like twice her age why wouldn't she sleep on someone society is structured to make this happen we're basically forcing this upon her like yes there are some women who are loyal absolutely this is not the decision of everyone but even so byron is saying we 
as a culture have built a world where we're turning out adulterers, where this is the most logical thing to do. Why are we then so upset about it? Why are we covering it up with all this highfalutin, high-talking scientific language? Why are we dressing it up as divine love when in fact it's just what it is? Lust, sex, horniness. Byron wants us to call a spade a spade. He wants us to stop covering up our desires and pretending like we don't have them, to use these sort of social excuses to both get into and get out of trouble. It's a mess, and Byron is right to point fun at a whole lot of it. Um, and while at the end he ultimately concludes, like, he's worried that he's going to be accused of not having a moral, I think there's a fairly strong moral here. It's just a moral directly counter to what is normally passed off as morality at the time. What he is suggesting is that the social structures are now destroying themselves. That they are all just self-defeating. That we are all basically propagating viciousness. Immorality is the logical conclusion of all of our moral ro laws and rules. Um, now, he says in stanza 207 that he intends to talk about hell and the, the ultimate comeuppance of Don Juan in Canto 12. In fact, he doesn't. Like... By Byron's Don Juan will never go to hell. Byron will die before Don Juan would get the opportunity to go to hell, if Byron ever intended for him to go to hell at all. And I think it's especially important that we point this out. Byron is suggesting, encouraging, and even is sort of bringing about a world where the old high-handed morality that usually associated Don Juan, like Don Juan, the evil, adulterous miscreant going around sleeping with all those women, he ultimately is dragged to hell for his crimes. Byron is positing that the world shouldn't be like that, that Don Juan isn't doing anything wrong, that in many cases these women want to be slept with. Society is forcing them into a situation where that is one of their few recourses. Immorality is morality for Byron. He is directly challenging the morality of the old Don Juan story. He is directly saying that Don Juan is a hero, that he shouldn't go to hell, that there is no punishment for this behavior, or at least there shouldn't be. Because to say that they did wrong is to say that ent the entirety of society made them to do wrong. Dona Inez, with her insistence that Don Juan never hear anything about sex. Um, Don, Don Alfonso, with his marriage to Donna Julia, and Donna Julia herself, they are all complicit in Don Juan's affair. And yet Don Juan, at the end of the day, if you just summarize the fine points of the story, Don Juan slept with another man's wife in the same way that Don Juan has always slept with another man's wife. Why do we condemn him, then? Byron asks. Why shouldn't he be a hero? Can Don Juan, the inveterate seducer, the jackal of Seville, in fact, be a positive role model? A positive character? Can he, through rejecting all of society's assumptions, actually prove how pathetic, how hypocritical, those societal mores actually are. 
And this is very much what the romantics are interested in doing. Byron will be one of the great romantics. He will be quoted all over the place. Don Juan, along with Child Herald's Pilgrimage, are going to be the flagship poems of the romantic movement. Don Juan, in some ways, will be their hero. Not in an ironic sense, but really, for real, Don Juan may very well be just the, you know, subversive underdog hero that the romantics are looking for. What was vice is now virtue. And it will only get weirder as we go. <laughs>